0: My prayer today is that there is someone who really needs to hear this message, um, even more than I needed to hear it and I needed to kind of work through this passage this week, that you needed to hear this message and it actually opens up what faith is all about to you in a way that you had never considered before and uh, we have that in this passage. Now, as we started the series off um, five weeks ago, this is week five now, um, we found that the real issue behind Romans, why Paul wrote it in the first place, not only because he wanted to get there, but because he had seen that there were a lot of divisions within the church between Jews and Gentiles, and in Roman society, very stratified, five different like levels, and that um, power and privilege were the two issues that were really being dealt with in this letter, and that that ran counter to Paul's understanding of the gospel that it isn't Jew versus Gentile or um, religious versus irreligious or male and female in divisions or slave versus free or any of the other issues that stratified their society and pitted one group against another. But in Christ, through his cross, all these groups are mended and brought together and a relationship with God at the core of it. We have amended relationship back with God where we were once broken. And this is absolutely important. It's not just because we want to be egalitarian and treat everyone the same, but because we have, by faith, equal, full access to God and his goodness and his grace. And we see that in the person of Abraham. And so Abraham becomes the case study for Paul of why this is true. That it isn't something novel, that it isn't something new that Paul just came up with. He didn't change Jesus' words or his understanding and Jesus didn't change what God was doing since the beginning. But faith has always been all the way through The way that we are connected to God and each other, and by grace that we are saved through that faith. We're going to read 1 through 5, and then 13 through 25, not quite the whole chapter. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, Faith is null, and the promise is void, for the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. So he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for that his sake only, but for yours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So today we're gonna be looking at faith and the teaching of justification, I know a huge word, we've talked about that a few times, justification by faith. And you might say to me right now, John, um, aren't all religions about faith? and, um, you know, and uh, you'd be right in a way, totally right. Every religious system is about believing in things that cannot be proven, okay? For instance, Hinduism and Buddhism believe that uh, time is kind of cyclical, that there has really been no beginning to this uh, universe and no end, it just keeps going and going and you just try to, and that cannot be proven It's just believed. And uh, Taoism, for example, um, believes in the flow of the universe, the Tao, behind all things the way, kind of like Star Wars. And it cannot be proven. It's just believed. Even atheism is a faith. I don't know if you realize that. Uh, But atheists or someone who uh, asserts there is no God cannot prove that there is no God. They have to believe that by faith. Okay, but when, God, when Paul talks about faith here in Romans chapter four, he's delineating faith not just as a belief in what can't be proven, but something that is really extraordinary. Something that isn't just mere believing in what cannot be seen, but something that believes in specifics, promises of God. And today in our series, we're going to find out how radical this is, how available it is, and how vital it is. And first of all, we're going to look at how radical. And I love that word, radical. You might not like it and go, oh my goodness, I don't want to be radical. Do you know what the word radical, it comes from the Latin radix. It's where we get the idea of a radish. And what is a radish? Probably a vegetable you don't like. But (laughs) it's a root. And what the word radical means is it's the root, it's the substance, it's what from everything else comes. And so when we're talking about faith in the Bible, it is the radical, it's the root cause, it's what's behind it all. You can go all the way back to the beginning of the Garden of Eden and see faith is something that God has called Adam and Eve to believe him at his word rather than what they thought or what they experienced and what they wanted. And of course, they kind of failed that. But already at the beginning, faith is absolutely important. But Paul doesn't go back to Adam and Eve, because in one sense, going back to the Garden of Eden would be going back to a time before the brokenness of this world. And you know, so he goes instead and uses Abraham as a model, as a case study of how faith actually does work in this world and what faith really is and how it goes about and how Abraham is the one who becomes the father of Isaac, the child of promise that God promised him at the age of 99 that he would have and that he becomes a grandfather of Jacob whose name is changed to Israel who is the father of the Jewish people. So Paul first says that faith is radically different than what you think it is, because he says it is not by works. Faith and works are total opposites. In Romans 4, 5, he says, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So you could say faith is actually so radical because it's the unwork. Like the Un-Cola? Do you, I'm, I'm really dating myself. Uh, 7-Up was called the Uncola because it was the other drink, not Coca-Cola, but it was the opposite of. And what does that mean, that it's not a work? You don't have to manufacture faith. It's not like you have to figure out, okay, do I have the faith gene? Can I actually believe? As if it's something that you have to do. You don't have to be implicit implicitly optimistic about life in order to be a follower of Jesus. It's not a human quality at all. Faith is radically different from something that you could do. Paul says Abraham's that model of faith, and Abraham, if you look at Genesis 12 and following through the 20s, that whole story of Abraham, Abraham does nothing. Okay, he believes. God promises and Abraham responds by believing him. Faith is actually nothing in itself. It depends on what God has promised. So Paul says, Abraham's that radical trust in God is being shown right here in what God has promised. If God didn't promise anything, there's nothing to believe in. You know, I don't even have faith in my own faith. Do you understand what I mean by that? It's like, oh, look at how strong a faith that I don't try, faith is always grasping outside of itself. And any time I start looking at myself and seeing how much faith I have, boy, does my unbelief start coming in because, man, I question things all the time and it's like, it's shaky ground. Faith depends totally on God's promise. So in other words, you know, you've probably heard if you have faith, you can move mountains, okay? Um, that's not actually accurate. You go, like, what? Doesn't the Bible say that? What it is, is faith the size of a mustard seed. That is the smallness of faith. It's not anything in it itself. You trust in a God who can move mountains. It's God who actually does it, and your faith only holds on to the God who does it. It all depends on the promise that God has given. Um, one sense you could say this. Here's an analogy, okay? Faith is a lever. I don't know if you've ever heard of the man named Archimedes. Anybody? Anybody? Yes? Okay. What is he famous for? Being Archimedes. (laughs) He was the one who came up with the phrase, Eureka, I discovered it. Did you know that? Okay, well, I just Wikipedia this stuff. So it's not like I, I, it's kind of like Alex Trebek. I mean, have you ever figured out that he doesn't really know that much? He just has the answers. So it's easy to look smart if somebody gives you the answers and they're in front of you, right? So um, that's kind of me in a sermon. Anyways, Archimedes said that, but he also said this. He said, give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum on which to place it, and I shall move the world. Have you ever heard that before? And faith, I'm saying, is like a lever. Do you realize he didn't say, give me a lever and I can move the world. He said, give me a lever and a firm place to stand or the fulcrum that won't be movable and I can move the entire planet. I can move mountains with a lever, not because of the lever, but because of the firm place to stand. Faith is nothing if it doesn't have a firm promise of God to stand on. A lot of people today just are into believism. If I just believe it, it'll happen, you know? Um, no, (laughs) I'm sorry. It's not magic. Faith doesn't have power in itself to make things happen. It has to be based on God and his promises, you know? So magically things will happen if you just believe and you have the power of positive thinking, it'll change. No, it won't. It's the promises of God that make faith to have any power at all. Faith is merely like the vehicle, the vessel for God's work and God's word. So I would say watch out for preachers who talk about faith all the time and how much faith you better have. Because when a preacher really believes, he will focus on Jesus and on God's promises and the goodness of God and not on faith itself. So faith is radical. It's a radical reliance. It's the root reliance on God and his promises, period. And so that's our first point. Our second is how available it is, because we find that in Abraham's example. Now, what's fascinating about the Abraham story, you didn't need to go to Sunday school for decades to figure all these things out, but I'm just going to, is the fact that um, when you read in the book of Genesis, he appears right after the flood in Noah, Uh, and Babylon, and the Tower of Babel, nations are scattered and then God chooses this one person, Abraham. At the end of Genesis 11 and the start of Genesis 12, and you learn very little backstory about Abraham. I think that's intentional. The only thing that you learn is that his father's name is Terah, and that you find out he's from Ur of the Chaldees, and That, there's nothing necessarily extraordinary about Abraham. What you do find out later in Joshua chapter 24 is Joshua records that Abraham's father, Terah, worshipped idols as well as Abraham's whole family. That's the only thing you find out about his backstory. And when reading it, you also discover that Abraham, even after he was called by God in Genesis 12, he doesn't really behave that well. Okay, um, like it or not, you know I, I don't think any husband should get away with this. Uh, what what Abraham does, any boyfriend, girlfriend, or husband, whatever you happen to be, don't treat women this way. But Abraham twice, twice, not just once, but twice, says to someone else, some other man, "Take my wife, please," and he meant have whatever you want with her. Because he was scared for his own life. He did that with Pharaoh and Abimelech. I don't think that's a man of faith at that point in time. Do you, uh, women, do you agree on that one? Oh, yeah. That's not what you want to do. And even at the start, God said to Abraham, leave your whole family behind and take, you know, like I'm sure he didn't mean leave Sarah behind, and take your flocks and herds. But um, he takes Lot along with him, his nephew God never told him to do that. So you find all these things that don't quite add up, and Abraham isn't this model of how noble and wonderful he is. Why does God call Abraham? That's a big question. Why Abraham, of all people on the earth? Because what we find in Genesis is there's nothing great about Abraham necessarily. Well, people have tried to fill in the gaps, you know, to that backstory. People have tried to come up with a reason. For instance, Genesis Rabbah, you've probably never heard of it. It's part of the Mishnah. It's a Midrashic text that was probably compiled around 300 A.D., and the history might have gone back into oral tradition quite well before that. The Midrash is commentary, like on the book of Genesis, Genesis Rabbah. Chapter 38 has a story in it called Abraham and the Idol Shop. It's like, where did this come from? I heard about it the first time when I was talking to a Jewish rabbi this summer. And Abraham and an Idol Shop is a story about how Abraham's father, Terah, owned an idol shop in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abraham, in the idol shop, was selling idols. And then he started thinking. And Abraham was thinking and philosophizing and going like, there must not be, these things can't be gods. And he came to the conclusion on his own, by his own intellect, his own um, theologizing, you might say, that there must only be one God. And then Abraham decides to burn down the idol shop. And after that, of course, his family disowns him, and then God steps in and calls Abraham. Do you get what's going on in that story? They're giving you a reason why God called Abraham, because Abraham was noble. He was the first person on earth to come to his own senses and figure out that there is a only one God. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. Nowhere in the text does it say that. Abraham is not uh, different from anyone else. What a different story that is! Um, an infamous, uh, infamous Brit, uh, William Norman Ever Ewer, excuse me, uh, once was quoted as saying, "How odd of God to choose the Jews." Now I think he was trying to be almost anti-Semitic and I don't think that that's the case with that. Why did God choose, why would he choose them? He should have chosen some other people. Um, So Ogden Nash, a poet, an American poet said no, it wasn't odd, the Jews chose God. Now what's odd about both of those is neither of them are in the Bible, right? The story is not it was odd that God chose Abraham. And it definitely isn't that Abraham chose God. It is by grace that God chose Abraham. That's what the story of the Bible is, that there is no reason inherent in Abraham that Abraham did anything, that Abraham would do anything, that Abraham would become anything necessarily, except that God chose Abraham for the sake of everyone. And God chose Abraham because God is God who is gracious and compassionate. That's definitely radical. What that means is no one is excluded from believing. Abraham's the father of us all. Because actually, when does it happen that God chose Abraham? It says this, again, in um, the sequence in Abraham's life. And to the one who does not work, Romans 4, verse 5, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Do you understand? Abraham is being compared here, not to a man of faith or a religious person, but he's an example of the ungodly. Someone who didn't know God, who wasn't about God, who had no idea who God really was. And God calls him and rescues him by his grace. Isn't that fascinating? And then you see Abraham being called there in Genesis chapter 12. This was before he even knew that there was one God. And then in Genesis 15, where he is credited with faith, and that becomes righteousness, Abraham wasn't circumcised, and 480 years later is when the Ten Commandments come about under Moses. Paul says the order of his life is very important. And in Genesis 15, 6, it says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That comes from Genesis, and Paul uses that phrase and says, That's how faith works. Faith is believing the promise of God. And then God says, that is your righteousness. Now that word, I love that word here for counted. It's the word logizomai in Greek. It's used, and it's where the word logic comes, right? But God's logic is such that he creates what isn't there. And how Timothy Keller says, what this really said, it's really to credit to someone. And to credit something is to confer a status that wasn't there before. So Abraham had no righteousness. He believed God in his promise, and God then gives to him what he doesn't have, that righteousness. That's the type of faith everyone can have. No one is excluded. No one is excluded from being able to believe because God gives that. It's credited to you. That's why Paul says Romans 4.16 in this passage, that's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. Abraham's the father of us all. And here's something I think you don't maybe realize, because we hardly ever get promises given to us in our lives, not real promises. They're usually conditional clauses. If, If you'll give me this, then I will do this, right? I mean, that's how you buy a car. If you will make these payments, then you get this car. Do you understand? We make contracts and deals all the time. But when God makes a promise, he has no if in the middle of it, never. God doesn't say to Abraham, if you're faithful to me, because Abraham wasn't always faithful. We just said that. If you believe enough, Abraham didn't always believe. He, in fact, along with Sarah, laughed when God (laughs) was promised to give him a child. And that's why they called him Isaac, which means to laugh. If you perfectly obey me, Abraham didn't. If you give back to me enough, God's promise is unconditional. He doesn't put an if in the middle of a promise. And so faith is open to anyone. And if you want to use an if at all, it's only on our side of it. If you're ungodly, you can still believe. If you're religious, you can still have faith. If you're breathing, you can believe. If you are irreligious, you can believe. If you're skeptical, you can believe. If you're rebellious, you can believe. Faith is open to you because it's available to you because it's not something you produce, but it's just the response to God's promises. So it's here for you. That's definitely a radical interpretation of Abraham's life. Paul is just taking what the Bible already has said about Abraham. And he's not, he's maybe departing from some of the Jewish understanding of his day because they wanted to take pride in the fact that Abraham was such noble character or had done something to deserve. There is no deserving of a relationship with God. But there is a God who graciously wants to give you one. Christians can do this too because I grew up in a small town with a big church. In fact, the church was bigger than the members of the town. There were yeah, seriously, there were 4,000 people in the church and 3,000 members of the town. And there was this um, kind of almost chip on the shoulder of look at my heritage. I was one of the founding members of this church 125 years ago. Now it's 175. I was a kid back then. You know, um, I would, you know, I look at all the pastors in my family. You know, all of these things. I don't know if you've ever heard of that type of stuff in church. And it's a bunch of baloney. Because the Bible undercuts all of that stuff with Abraham. Doesn't find anything in Abraham and everything in God. And I'm glad it does, because then I don't have to worry about whether I can believe if I'm going to be disqualified because my faith is not quite as strong as it should be, that I'm not loving as others are, or I'm I'm struggling a little more. I have more doubts or questions than others. But that also means there's no excuse. That is, there's no excuse of why you don't believe. And I've heard people say, oh, well, you're a pastor. It must be easy for you. It comes naturally. It doesn't come naturally. It does not come naturally. It comes supernaturally by the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the only way anybody believes. I love what Soren Kierkegaard said. He said, God creates out of nothing. Wonderful, you say yes, to be sure, but he does something still more wonderful. He makes saints out of sinners or he takes the ungodly and makes them righteous. That's what happens in Romans chapter four. So, that's the second point. It is totally available to anyone because we all fit into that quote ungodly, just like Abraham. Thirdly, we learn how vital this is, faith how absolutely essential faith actually is. The one thing God calls for you to have is faith. He does not call you to be smart. He doesn't call you to have good grades. He doesn't call you to be virtuous. He doesn't tell you to have morals or standards as the vital thing that you must have. He doesn't say you better be powerful or you better be well-liked or you better uh, have good character in order to qualify. He only says, trust me. Trust me. And that makes all the difference. Hebrews uh, in chapter 11 puts it this way, without faith it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. In other words, faith is the only thing that's ever gonna make you righteous or mend any of your relationship with God or anyone else. You're never gonna have enough money to gain righteousness and besides, the money you've got is God's already. I don't know if you realize that. You're never going to be good enough to be righteous. You're never going to, uh, because my good deeds are riddled with my egotism and my ulterior motives all the time. You'll never be loving enough. You're never going to be kind enough or thoughtful enough or woke enough or cool enough or liberal enough or conservative enough. Your enoughness cannot come from you. God is your enough. Okay? Okay. Faith is simply an empty hand that receives all that God has, his goodness. And God is so good he wants to give. That's why Paul ties Abraham's faith not just to the goodness of God for that promise way back in the Old Testament, 1900 years before Christ, but he ties it into the gift of Jesus himself at the end of this chapter because that is what God wants to really give you for his righteousness. He says in Romans 4, 23 to 25, but the words it was counted to him, We're not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So that's where the content of your faith comes in, because God wants to give to your empty hands everything that Jesus accomplished. So Jesus was handed over for our trespasses. He was betrayed. He was brutalized. He was crucified. He was cast out so that you would be gathered in. He was impoverished. He was stripped of all his wealth so that you would have the riches of eternity. And all he was given... disempowered completely to the point of death so that you would have the power of God. He was stripped of all of his privileges and status of being the son of God himself so that you would be gained. And given the status of Jesus, when you pray, you pray as if Jesus is praying that prayer. Isn't that amazing? You have all the authority and all the status and all the power and all the righteousness of Jesus Christ whenever you utter a word to your Father in heaven. And faith is the way that you appropriate all that. So it's vital, and it's really, to me, also the only way I'm having hope right now in this world. <laughs> you know, um, uh, right now, I think a lot of people are looking for hope in, you know, whatever, whether it's science or politics. Boy, to me, that's just hopeless. Um, but <laughs> you might find a lot of hope, and in... maybe you think, if only my Party wins. If only my, um, if technology does this, or and I'm just like, no. um, I don't have to be hopeful about those things, because my hope is in the promises of God and what he has already accomplished. Um, So are Christians pessimists about this world or optimists about this world? And I would say, neither. We look at this world, we see how broken it is. We don't expect it to fix itself, but we don't abandon it. We don't, like, try to huddle up and kind of, like, say, oh, I'm just going to take care of myself. No. Because we know a God who chose to be broken for this world in Jesus Christ, and who gave us all to love this world and to redeem this world. And so when bad news happens, we're not like shocked and dismayed. We just trust in God all the more. And I don't have to fret and worry that the world is right now falling apart. By the way, I know we probably, in, even in my lifetime, and I'm you know, not quite as old as Methuselah, he lived 996 years or something like that in the Bible. Closer than you, that is true. I've got, at least I've got hair, <laughs> okay? <laughs> I'm not going to say anything. About Let's not go down that road. Um, but um, this might be the first time in my lifetime that it's like, oh my goodness, everything's just falling apart. Well, it's not the first time in the last 2,000 years that the world thought the world was falling apart, and about the year 1,000 it was, and about 1,500 again with the Plagues in Europe. Um, We've had wars, and uh, you know, I'm not saying it's not—it's wonderful and looks sunny side of life type stuff. But I'm saying it's happened before, and you can look back at those times, and you could still, in the midst of this difficulty, still have joy and peace because of faith and trusting in a God who keeps his promises in the midst of difficult times. So I don't have to like be all serious all the time, as if the weight of the world is on my shoulders, because it's not. It was carried by Jesus Christ once and for all. And so that's why Martin Luther, who lived about 500 years ago, the start of the Reformation said it this way, you have as much laughter as you have faith, so it's not a sign of being serious. And so it's actually I can let, you know I can look at this stuff and say, God is greater than God has promised. God is keeping His promises. Nothing has changed. Jesus Christ has established that nothing can separate me from the love of God in Jesus Christ. And I can name promise after promise of God, and my faith itself being empty but is filled, my hand is filled with the promises of God and His goodness and His character, and I know that for sure through Jesus Christ. So, faith can be in dark times your hope because it's in God, your joy because it's found in Christ, and your comfort because the Holy Spirit is involved in your life. So, we've said the three things it's vital. It's not faith in itself or in human potential, but in God. It's available, it's radical, it mends your relationship with God, and it begins to mend relationships with each other. So the real question today is, and this is the pointed one, what's keeping you from believing in Jesus right now? You know? I mean, the excuses are gone. It's not something you have, it's like, well, I'm just not, no, it's not about you, it's about him. And God is offering to you the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the fullness of his life. He loves you that much, he will never let you go. And so, it's not something you have to wait for, or you have to think more about, it's something you can just respond to the promise of God and trust him radically and implicitly like Abraham did when Abraham himself was ungodly. Will you pray with me now? Lord God, um, thank you for this wonderful example that Paul sees in the case study, the first, the man of faith, but the man of also humanness and brokenness, Abraham, whose life was a shambles without your grace but who held on to your promise through it all, Lord. And we pray now, I pray especially for those who have struggled and have doubted and have been confused and thought, well, I just don't have it, that they can let go of all those things and realize they don't have to have anything when they come to you. In fact, being empty of everything is the way to actually approach you and to receive our righteousness, the goodness of Jesus Christ as the only thing that makes the difference, Lord. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, you are eliciting faith and bringing that response of faith in in all of us who are hearing this message today, your gospel and goodness. For you want to mend our broken relationship with you and our broken world through faith, by grace, alone. I pray, Lord, too, today for those who are looking to you for all good things. There are people in our congregation who are struggling right now, Lord God, with their physical health. And those who might be struggling with their financial stability, Lord God, and those who are wondering their purpose. and doubting themselves in this world, there are people who are probably, uh, Lord, I know because we're all struggling with these things, facing um, anxiety and depression about everything that's going on in this world. And it's so easy to get caught up in our own situation and not look to you for good things. So I'm praying, Lord God, that you turn our gaze to you alone. And that we would see your goodness and grace in our lives. I pray, Lord, specifically for those who need your healing touch. For Andrea Blankenship, as she awaits a clinical trial, we pray that you would bring it about soon, Lord. That we get good news this week from Moffitt up in Tampa. That she is able to, that you open that door. And we can praise you for it. And that you would bring your healing there. For Kai, This little child out in California who's undergoing chemo for a year because of a tumor. For Chris, who's also facing a brain tumor at this time, that you would bring your healing touch. For Vern, as he recovers, oh Lord, at home. For um, many others who are needing your physical touch right now and are dealing with struggles, Lord, for their physical health. We pray, Lord God, for those facing financial woes right now, Lord God. I pray that you would show them your goodness and grace, that you would provide for them, and that you would use us at Thrive to be a family. If somebody is uh, struggling, Lord, that we are able to assist and help as members of the same family, Lord God, that we are willing to give and and to serve and to love i pray lord uh, as well for those who are facing um, anxiety and depression for those who are facing the pressures of performing at school or at work or wondering when the next meal's coming or whether they can stay in uh, the housing they have because of the finances through the COVID 19 pandemic lord god we pray that you would use us to not only reassure them and comfort them and pray for them, but that we would be your hands and feet and extend whatever they need at this time and that they would be able to trust you and see that you may not uh, provide well in advance, but you are always on time with everything that you do give and you know how to give good gifts. So for all these things, Lord, and I especially pray... um, Now that you uh, would have your way with this world, this pandemic is not just, um, oh, oops, it happened. But Lord, I think you are calling us in the midst of these situations to realize the one thing needed, to trust you, to come to you, to believe you, to have you in our lives. And everything else will fall in place when we seek your kingdom first. All these other things are added. And um, there is no other way to do it. So, Lord, use us to serve this community in an effective way and help us to be as uh, approximately as compassionate as you are to others and understanding that we would be aligned Lord Jesus, with everything that you are, so that people see you and not us, that they recognize they can trust you, and that you can carry them, that you have carried them upon your back through the cross and the empty tomb, and will give you, give to them your righteousness. All this we pray in your precious name, dear Jesus. Amen.